Welcome podcast listeners to the Spheres podcast. I'm your host, Toby Castle. Spheres is a public theology podcast that helps successful people live more theologically by creating brave spaces of shared meaning. Each episode features an extended interview with a different athlete, scholar, educator, entrepreneur, politician, or activist, and how they think theologically and live well in society. Enjoy. Recently, I had the chance of speaking with good friend and social organizer, Andre Henry, about whiteness, militant nonviolence, faith, and Bob Marley. We discussed the current landscape here in the US around violence, the growing problem of white Christian nationalism, and the power of organizing people for social change. Andre was born and raised in Atlanta, an epicenter of America's civil rights struggle. He's an award-winning singer-songwriter, fanning the flames of revolution around the world. The son of Jamaican immigrants, listen to say his future reggae sound is truly unique, combining the influences of Atlanta's trap-inflected R&B, Caribbean pop, and conscious lyrics with his impassioned vocals and gripping storytelling. From personal tales of run-ins with the police to anthems about unarmed women who fought off Nazi soldiers. Andre's music aims to convince listeners of the power ordinary people have to change the world. He's also an award-winning writer, leading thinker, and sought-after speaker on the topics of racism and building non-violent movements for social progress. His message can be summed up in a single lyric. It doesn't have to be this way. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Right, Andre Henry, my friend, thank you for uh, coming on Spheres and and, uh, engaging in a conversation around your work, around uh, who we are and who we're becoming. I guess I want to open this conversation as curious about, uh, as an activist leader, prominent influence around practices of racial equity in public spaces. What does it mean for you to live philosophically? That's an interesting question because I I don't think of myself as living philosophically, but I guess that I guess that I do have you know some kind of philosophy about how I'm you know going about my work and. My work is so intertwined with my life that I guess you could say it, it has something to do with my life too. So um, I guess this is about praxis, right? Like what you do and the values that are embedded in what you do, right? And um, so for me, <clears throat> gosh, you know, it's so funny. Like we took this Christian language out of the first question, but like honestly, like a lot of that, a lot of how I view like life has to do with you know, something I learned growing up as a Christian, which is, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, I think that that is like, if I had to say anything about like my practice of work and life, like that's something that I aim toward. As I say that, I also just feel like it's important to point out that like um, every culture in history has some version of that, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Yeah. My friend Brandy, she tweeted this, and I don't even think she understands like how impactful this was, but she tweeted about this years ago. And she was like, when we hear this phrase, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, 
we often still interpret it as don't do to other people what you wouldn't want them to do to you right mm-hmm. but but the way that this thing is phrased at least in in the tradition <clears throat> in christian tradition is not don't do to others what you don't want but actually do to them what you would want for them to do so it's active yeah. right yeah and so that is something that like um i think is at the kind of the base of the work that i do you know um and to live from that place i think really is just a lot of like trying to make sure that my decisions are in line with that value right like yeah at times i hear a kind of a twist on that and mm-hmm. it's not due to un- and it's not due to others as you would have them do to yourself yeah it's due to others no it's not due to others as they would want done to them it's due to others that they would want to do to you mm-hmm. so, yeah. so it's actually quite reflexive it's like what how do i want to be treated therefore that's how i will treat others yeah i wonder at times do we do we marginalize others because we don't place ourselves in their story i think absolutely I think for some people, like it's almost impossible for them to imagine themselves in someone else's shoes, right? <clears throat> this is something that I think that honestly whiteness does to to people who think that they're white, you know, is you know, when we talk about empathy between different groups and stuff like that, it's very hard for someone who believes that they're white, which is in another way is basically, you know, you believe that you're human, to put yourselves in the shoes of another person who you know, we've had centuries of programming to believe are not human in the same way, right? Yeah. Especially black people, you know, black being non, non-human non for many people. Um, and I do think that it's that inability for people to imagine themselves, you know, in that person's place, right? That upholds like all of, a lot of this like violence and inequity that we see in society for sure, you know? Because honestly, like if people imagined themselves in that person's place their their daughters their sons their loved ones you know whoever you know on the other side of whatever that oppression or violence is or even indifference you know that upholds violence right because most people are not like hitler right like (laughs) like you know so we talk about like oppression and all that good stuff most people don't feel like they're that directly involved with anyone else's oppression but even Imagine yourself being in a position where you face, you know, some type of discrimination or violence or whatever every day. And the people who are around you, even the people who say that they love you, don't do anything about it. Aren't even curious enough to <laughs> to learn more about it, right? To help you. So, for sure. Tell me, what drew you to... I guess we could call it a lifelong work of racial justice. What was <clears throat> was there a tipping point? Was there a moment? Yeah. Also a light dimmer that you just kind of emerged into this space and then you and then you're like, hey, I'm here. I yeah. don't know how I got here. What happened? I always cared about racial racial justice, but you know, and I'm writing about this in my book actually that I'm working on comes out next year that um you know i grew up in stone mountain georgia and in the south there's a lot of programming 
you know, for people of color and black people to um, to deny like the the racial history and the legacy of the Confederacy here, the legacy of Jim Crow, you know, which is really alive and well, you know, but it really is hard. It's really hard to talk and think about racism as a black person <clears throat> in a place like Stone Mountain because there's this very strong culture of, culture of denial and defensiveness around it. So growing up that way, even though I could see like differences in the way that teachers treat black kids and white kids and police officers and store clerks and all them, they treat black kids differently. Trying to name that, you know, people would say like, stop playing the race card and stuff like that, you know. Um, so uh, naturally I didn't do very much freedom fighting, you know, growing up in that context. You know, I went to school in Florida and the same kind of culture. Um, when, by the time, so there was a tipping point, you know, after years of living outside of Stone Mountain, you know, after college. Uh, and that was when I watched Philando Castile, uh, bleed to death on Facebook live in 2016, July 6, 2016. And, um, you know, up to then, I had, had all these personal experiences and seen, you know, obviously we heard about Trayvon Martin, heard about Michael Brown, Eric Garner, uh, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, Jimmy Rice. You know, these are all names that had, that that we had, that had, that were hashtags, right? Like within a year of Philando Castile's murder. And that day that I watched Philando Castile die <clears throat> was the moment that I just said, you know what, like, I can't just sit here and, you know, feel helpless and outraged anymore about this. Like, we have fought this before, and we've at least made changes. Like, I want to I wanna avoid saying we've made progress, you know, but changes have at least been made, right? And we force the hand of white America and and America's government to make those changes so we can do them again, right? And so I thought, well, let me learn more about systemic racism and let me learn more about nonviolent struggle and see how I can participate in, you know, movement building. <laughs> and I didn't think that the rabbit hole was going to go so deep and like it was just going to like become my whole life, you know, but it has, you know, six years later, has it been six, 26, so five years later, yeah. um, you know, five years later, um, it has, you know, been, yeah, it's just become like my whole life. Would you say that the, that the journey that you've been on over the last five years has like changed your, not only the way you think, so like your orthodoxy? For sure. But it's also changed your your orthopraxy or your praxis uh, dramatically, or or is it more so just the tinkering? Uh yeah. I'm my life is completely different, you know, <laughs> um, and the way that I think about things is completely different. I, I mean, I'm I would say like like I said, like I grew up in Stone Mountain, where the like where the wake you know the legacy of the Confederacy is very strong here. Um, but I, you know, Stone Mountain is, or where I am, Stone Mountain Decatur is like six miles outside of Atlanta, right? Um, and 
just like the legacy of the Confederacy is strong, so is the legacy of the Civil Rights Movement. You know, this is where Dr. King used to pastor, you know, in this city, right? And um, so I say all that to say, like, there, there are seeds of what I believe now that were always there, right? But there's so much more that I didn't understand until, like, maybe 2014 when I first heard when I heard the term whiteness for the first time, right? <laughs> you know? And I remember that it was a weekend, some weekend event at the church that I was working at at the time. It, it was all about whiteness. And I remember that that conversation feeling different from any other conversation I'd ever had on race because we weren't talking about, we weren't talking about like, why do black people suffer so much? Like, you know? Is it the music? Is it the families? Is it the culture? You know, because that's how those conversations usually go. It's like, what's going on in the Black community why Black people are suffering so much? Yeah. Right? Oh, no, 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 no. This conversation was talking about why the fact that some people really believe that they're white um, or how the, how the fact that some people really believe that they're white is consequential for other people outside of their group. That's the first time I ever heard something like that. So... I say I use that example to say like those that was a completely that was a shift right for me and now thinking about whiteness being something right like like it existing yeah. right and from there all kinds of when I started when I woke up to to when I feel like I really woke up 2 years later in 2016 and I started like seeing that all kinds of different oppressions are connected in certain ways and 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 letting go of this idea that like my job or the goal of racial justice is to bring white people and black people to sit down at a table together and to, you know, basically listen to white racists, you know, express their racism toward, you know, black people and try to convince them to not think that way. So I will say that like the way that I think is completely different and the way that I live is completely different because of that, because, you know, <laughs> I don't argue with white racists anymore. Like I did in the beginning. I don't, I don't concern myself so much with persuading them to think a certain way. My relationship with the church completely changed, you know, through all of that, because I saw like for the, for, I saw very clearly in 2016 how deeply implicated Christianity is, Western Christianity is, in this whole global system of racism, right? Yeah. To yeah. the point where I had to really ask myself, like, I mean, like, is God a white supremacist supervillain or something? You know, <laughs> because they named the first slave ship Jesus, you know. <laughs> And, and use the Bible, you know, for all of this, you know, all of this terror and the Pope like wrote permission, you know, for these colonizers to do what they did. So like I, I mean, growing up, I went to church all the time. It was my favorite place to be, you know, and now I, it's, you know, just very different, you know, like the way that my, I don't really go to church anymore. I don't really, really read the Bible that much anymore and all of that. And I'm still working through, like, what do I believe about God now, right? Because when the only version of Christianity that you've known has been white Christian nationalism, 
And the only God that you've known has been, you know, a God who is a patron of white Christian nationalism. You know, there's a lot of trauma to work through there too. So I know I've spent a lot of time on this question, but I would say that, yeah, like my, my, my life looks very different in a lot of different ways. And the last thing I say about that is just my involvement in like direct action, you know, and my belief in direct action, you know, what I thought direct action was before 2016, you know, I couldn't even tell you, it was very nebulous. And I think it's very nebulous for most people. But now I spend so much time thinking with other people about like how we can, you know, how we can fight the power and win, you know, in this or that locale, right? And so you talk a lot about whiteness. Mm. What does Andre Henry mean when he, when he says white or whiteness? Really you good know? question. Because as, as an Aussie, I know that I embody uh, from a distance what, yeah. it, what, it may, what it could mean to be white. Right. But I would argue that in understanding uh, systemic racism, mm-hmm. the narrative arc, um, that those most proximal to the pain are those usually with the best answers to what's going <laughs> on. That there's an argument to, even though I come from a, a an Anglo-Saxon tradition, that mm-hmm. um, I probably don't embody what you mean by whiteness. Right. So would that be true, or please feel free to, to put me in my place? Um, I don't know. I mean. I do think that you, yeah, I don't think you embody what I mean by whiteness, even though, like, if I didn't know you, I'd be like, hey, look, that's a white guy over there, right? But <laughs> but, <laughs> but because I know you, I don't feel like you embody what I think of when I think of whiteness. And I think that this is a really good point to start on, is that whiteness and people who appear to be white are not the same thing, right? <clears throat> and I think that whiteness is really... It's a way of thinking. It's a way of behaving and existing in the world. I, I wonder if it. Okay, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna process that out loud right now. <laughs> I'm gonna think about that later. <laughs> well, I wonder if it might be right. I wonder if it might be right to call whiteness kind of an ideology of of sorts, right? I believe um, so. Yeah, yeah. and the, the reason why I question is because at the moment I'm I'm not sure that I. You know, sometimes like you come across a word again that you're familiar with, but you're like, am I using this correctly? So I I don't know where the universal standard checklist is for what counts as an ideology, but for, for now it feels uh, appropriate and useful to talk about it ideologically, right? So anyway, I think that whiteness is obviously, um, it's like an invention, mm. right? Race is an invention. It's like a technology of sorts, right? Invented around the Enlightenment period, you know, when Europeans were like looking around the world and like, we're gonna expand these empires. Like Spain wants to take over the world. Britain wants to take over the world. France wants to take over the world. They all just, they all just want so much of the world, right? And they want, they want so much of this land because they want to, you know, they want to, they want to enrich themselves and they want to, you know, create uh, goods and make money. They want to make profit. And, um, you know, they're like, hey, but there are people living over there already, right? <laughs> and people living in these lands already that we want to take over and take their land and we want to develop. Um, and so they develop like these these justifications 
for taking the land and enslaving people to produce the products that they want to produce and make the profits they want to make. And one of these justifications is <laughs> uh, we are lighter skinned than them, than they are. Yeah. Right. We, uh, which eventually, which eventually develops into like the idea of whiteness, white people. Right. And the idea of blackness and the idea of, you know, um, subhuman peoples of color, right? Uh, savage indigenous people and all that kind of stuff. So that's, so, I mean, that's how it starts and it develops into this idea of human hierarchy, right? That like white people, uh, people who are, are white are, conce- are uh, what do you want to say? Like they're, they're positioned at the top of this hierarchy as like the ideal human form, right? The, and in some ways the default human, right? And people of color, like indigenous people, and um, sorry to lump you all together, um, folks folks of Asian descent, and um, um, you know, these, these lighter skinned people are, categor- they're positioned as kind of subhuman, right? Like even the indigenous people who are massacred in North America could at least become like the 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 trope of the noble savage later on, but uh, but the children of Africa, the descendants of Africa, they're positioned as the the floor of this, the non-human, right? Um, and so basically, this idea of human hierarchy uh, and whiteness uh, comes in like in the present, where people still kind of believe some version of this human hierarchy, even on just even if it's just on the intuitive level. Right. So I remember this conversation I was having with my friend in Orlando a couple of years ago, and we were talking about police brutality. I can't remember if something had actually happened at the time. We we're talking about police brutality, though. And she said she's a white woman. And she said, well, what if they just dressed like normally, then, you know, maybe that wouldn't have happened to them. And because they were my friend, I was like, I'm not going to like snap at them because of this profoundly racist statement, but I am going to poke at it. And so I asked her, what do normal people look like and what do they dress like you know like normal people no like no tell me describe it you know and i push and i push and i push and finally she said and she had an epiphany when she said i saw her eyebrows go up and her eyes get really wide and she and her the her tone of voice changed she goes oh my god they look like me and it's like it's like one of those movies where someone's under a trance right and just for like a few seconds they snap out of it right and you can see them like the actual person right like that's how it felt was like it was like that spell broke for her for a few seconds because she was in the same place she was the next day you know she had said that but for a few seconds she was able to see like oh wait there's something there (laughs) the fact that i think that normal people that if people looked like me they wouldn't be harmed right I think that that is what whiteness does to people who believe that they're white and think that they are white, right? Because it, you are a, you are a person, right? You have a whole humanity about you, but this idea that people who don't look like you don't deserve the same access to healthcare and public safety and to wealth and, you know, all these other things that we could name. Like that controls people, the way that they move through the world, the way that they think, their ability to empathize, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. All right. And I'm going to assume that your friend in Orlando, that he is ethnically or racially white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
what you're talking about reminds me of the way in which Willie Jennings from Yale talks about. Yes. Yeah. And so I know that uh, in a way we're both cherry picking from him. Um, mm -hmm. He said something uh, a couple of years ago that when he said it mm -hmm. uh, at um, a forum that I was at, it helped me unpack that whiteness wasn't merely racially or ethnically centered, although it can be. Mm -hmm. It's not only ideological, although it can be, mm -hmm. and it's not only ontological, but it can be. Yeah. And he says that until one realizes that the process of creating whiteness in the Western world is an act of violence against people of color. Yes. Racism is a construct of understanding the human being. Hmm. Whiteness is a political marker. It's not just a skin color. Yes, absolutely. And religion is one of the engines or tools to mobilize this reality. Hmm. Until we realize these realities, we perpetuate a violent status quo with ignorance and will. Okay, first off, where is that in his Can White People Be Saved essay? No, that was in a verbal response that uh, yeah. he said to a question that I asked him. A couple oh, of okay, so he, that's one of his responses to the Q&A. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, I, I need that. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, um, I will text it to you. Uh, yeah, I appreciate as, that. As we speak. Uh, here it comes. Um, it and so looking then over the last 12 months, um, did the US really have a racial awakening in the summer of 2020? And almost 12 months on, how do you interpret <laughs> people's responses to racial violence then? Yeah. And where are we now? I think we did. I really do. Now, we have to, but we have to talk about something, right? Like, if you get woken up in the middle of the night, you know, you get, you get woken, you get shaken out of your sleep at three a.m. because your house is on fire, or whatever, right? You know, um, maybe I went too far with the house on fire, but we're gonna stick with it for now. Let's see where it takes us. Um, um well, you the, wake up in the middle of the night. There was that police department in Minneapolis. That, that was right. <laughs> maybe, and you know. Um, a friend of ours, Ben McBride, he and I always joke that uh, that was a burning bush moment. <laughs> Some people realized they were on holy ground and... Well, it happened around Pentecost. So, I mean, it was yeah. like, <laughs> it was like really, really interesting. Like the way that things, the way that things, the way that events unfolded last year. But okay, so you get woken up in the middle of the night. Like there's no reason why I would think that like, that I would expect that you'll never go back to sleep. So I do think that there was a, an awakening last year. Now, and I think there's no question about it. There were so many more people on the streets for Black Lives Matter last year than we've seen at any other point in history. And not just black people, because I remember in 2016, black people were like, where's everybody, right? Especially in 2017, when the Women's March happened in January and all these people came out for the Women's March and we we're sitting there like, wait a minute, where were y'all? last year right so we had i saw and i was on the streets last year and i saw so many 
people from so many different backgrounds. And not just that, in small towns where it was just white people, <laughs> right? You had young white people going going out into the streets for Black Lives Matter last year. So there was definitely an awakening. At the same time, by the end of the year, you look at polls of support for Black Lives Matter. In the summer, very high. By the fall, they had already declined by the fall. Which is, the, which is the same trend that King went through when he, when he first came on board. Yeah. Uh, Montgomery, and then just before he was assassinated, yeah, I think his approval rating was like thirty-two percent. Yeah, seventy-five percent of the of people who took that uh, Harris poll in nineteen sixty-eight were not fans of Dr. King, the most hated man in America by the time by his death, by the time he died. So you know the the support for the movement declined by the end of the year last year, right? So I will say yeah, there was an awakening. There are people who are still awake now from that, but a lot of people went back to sleep. And I think this is actually connected. This actually connects to what I was saying about my friend who it's like, you know, people can like the, the trance can be broken for a few moments. Sometimes it's not always broken forever. And I think that we saw that like, and it's easy, like for people who have just recently, like they just watched George Floyd be brutally murdered. They know that's wrong. They saw the police officer not just kneeling on the man's neck, but smiling while he did it, right? And so now they're, now it's come, it becomes undeniable that like, okay, wait. Now things are starting to click for people, things that they've heard over the years. Now they're on the streets, da 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 But at the same time, they've just recently woken up. And so when you see like, I don't think that a lot of people thought far enough into it to understand that like, first off, you know, when you're at a protest and just because you're at a Black Lives Matter protest, when a car gets on spot, get, when a car gets set on fire or a building gets set on fire, doesn't mean that Black Lives Matter is responsible for that. <laughs> right. I don't think they thought. And so that was easily weaponized against the movement. You know, I think another part of it was like the crackdown on some of these things, you know, the, you know, you had police snatching people off the street and, you know, in unmarked vehicles, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I think intimidation, I think burnout, you know, because there was a lot of people on the streets without strategy, you know. And I think a lot of people also very optimistic, which is, you know, that can be uh, that can be an asset to the movement. But I think some people thought they were going to end systemic racism by the end of the summer, by August, <laughs> right? <laughs> and And they were going to do it by chanting Black Lives Matter, you know. Um, and that's just not the way that it works. So I think there are a lot of factors in there, you know. So where we are right now, right? We're a year, we're a year, we're we're just about a year out from George Floyd's murder last year, and <clears throat> now there are huge demonstrations for Palestine all over the world. There are demonstrations for what's going on in Colombia. Um, there have been demonstrations in, in India for a long for you know a, a good while now, and I think that I think that what has and also there's this huge like kind of like contention around like critical race theory in America right now, and you know you've got politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene and you know all that's kind of so. Let me just say a little bit about this, okay? So one, I think that the movements that we're seeing, like this huge turnout we saw for uh, Palestine, for the Palestinian people and their struggle. Yep. I think that it's totally 
a descendant of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, I think that a lot of people who were awakened last year are involved in these protests now. And the work of the Black Lives Matter movement since 2013, when George Zimmerman was acquitted for the murder of Trayvon Martin, has really worked on the common sense of people to get people out into the streets over the past, you know, year now. Uh, I don't see a lot of people, I don't see a lot of strategy for these demonstrations. So there's still a lot of mobilization, you know, but the thing that I think really that we need is more strategy, more more understanding how, how the system works, what the right targets are, what tactics would be effective in moving those targets. And then on the Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of, the reason I made that point about Marjorie Taylor Greene and stuff like that is because there is a counter revolution, you know, going on and has been going on, you know, um, for some time, especially, you know, most obviously, I think in Donald Trump's attempt to, to remain in office past his term, <laughs> you know, uh, that this is a part of the counter revolution uh, that whiteness always launches, you know, I'm getting away from using the language that a lot of people do use about racial progress, where they say it's one step forward, two steps back. You know, it's that 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 has a lot of misconceptions, I think, that uphold that kind of language. I think that we need to really think about the language of of revolution and counter revolution. Like the Black Lives Matter has gained the Black Lives Matter movement has gained ground and I think it's gained significant ground. And every time the racial justice movement gains any ground, there is a white supremacist counter-revolution mm-hmm. to racial progress, you know, and some even would say a fascist counter-revolution to racial progress. And I think that they're accurate in saying that. One of the key ways that I think I've seen you uh, kind of grow and emerge over the last, what is it, six years that we've known each other? Yeah. Is that um, and you touched on it just then in regards to community organizing. Yeah. Like not just organizing, but having a clear strategy. Yeah. In organizing. As kind of a tipping point into it, I recall watching uh, a message or, you know, a sermon, if we want to go there, that you mm-hmm. did where you use the analogy of Simon Says. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love playing Simon Says with people now. (laughs) Can you, um, for those listening, unpack kind of the example that you gave with Simon Says, but then also the need and the kind of thinking behind not only organizing, but having a clear strategy with organizing? Yeah. um, So, yeah, I play Simon Says with different groups now because... um, I'm trying to help people understand a lesson about power that I didn't really understand until I started studying nonviolent struggle, which I hear that, you know, you learn in civics, but I don't remember learning it in civics. And if we did, we didn't spend much time on it. So it felt like an, an epiphany to me, but that it's like uh, Flo Kennedy says, I used to quote Jean Sharp, but now I know that there's a black queer woman who said it. So now, so now I just say Flo Kennedy says. <laughs> so Flo Kennedy says that obedience is at the heart of political power, basically which is a good summary of this. And I wanted to think of a way to demonstrate this with people. And Simon Says is an obedience game, right? When Simon Says do something, you all do it. And that's why the game works though. 
And the interesting thing, though, is like, and that's how society works. So let me even before I talk about what happens in the game, that's how society works. Society works be on our consent, right? Yeah. If we start saying, oh, we're not going to do this, we're not going to do that, the gears of society stop, stop moving, right? But people don't really know this. Like, we don't walk around with a real sense of our power, our collective power, especially because in America, like, we're very trained to think individualistically. So we don't even think that we're all participating in a collective action. Every single day, we're participating in a collective action. And that is the collective action of making sure that this society that really is not working for many of us continues to run, right? So when I play Simon Says with folks, I give them a couple of I give them a couple of instructions that I know that they'll follow. Say your first name, clap three times, jump up and down, whatever. And then I tell everybody pull down their pants. <laughs> Simon says, Simon says, pull down your pants. And everybody just laughs. And then I go, wait a minute, y'all. Like you do understand the rules of the game, right? Simon says, pull down your pants. And no one pulls down their pants. And then I ask them, well, who has the power in this game? And Oftentimes, people are able to recognize what just happened. And so they'll say, we do, right? And a lot of times, it's like, oh, my gosh, I, yeah, we have the power in this game. Uh, oftentimes, people don't even recognize it then. And then I have to tell them, like, well, <clears throat> the game has kind of broken down now because you all won't do what Simon says anymore. Um, and so I, I, I keep playing that game and trying to bring that lesson because that's, that is the theory of power that underlies like nonviolent struggle as a whole, right? Even what we're seeing right now, you know, as um, there's some Italian dock workers, I think, I think they're dock workers, but they they might have a different job, but basically they, they're, they're, they're responsible for delivering arms, you know, to Israel for, to, to, to fight uh, against Palestine. And they said, no, we're not gonna do it, right? Like that Simon says, <laughs> Right. And that's that's the power of our collective. No. And I keep saying to people, like, if if the status quo is upheld by our our collective obedience, then our mass obedience, it can be changed through our mass defiance. OK, but OK, so that's good. That's nice to know. Right. And it's nice to know that, like, it's nice. It's, it's good to know, like, kind of a reason why these really powerful actions throughout history like even the montgomery bus boycott and this you know the birmingham campaign all these things that they worked on that theory of power or because of that theory of power but the other part of that is the organization piece that you mentioned and <clears throat> that now that theory of power is not enough to just know that if we disobey then the thing doesn't work like you've got to have a strategy for how you're going to use that power You've got to organize that power. And this thing that a lot of people don't realize, and uh, it was, I think it was Hardy Merriman, who I, he's the director of the International Center for Nonviolent Conflict, who said this to me first. But he said, you know, we are in a power struggle. Well, that's not the part that he said that was like new to me. That's that's the part that we that we know, right? We're in a power struggle. But the part that was that he said that was like the way that he said it was like, oh. He was like the per the the side that wins is the one that out organizes the other, and I think a lot of people don't realize this that like the powers that be are very organized and they're highly resourced, and they know how to mobilize those resources to keep the status quo moving the way that they want for it to. I think a lot of people don't realize that we are in a power struggle. That this is a conflict. 
like especially like when I talk about militant nonviolence, everybody everybody squirms when I say militant, and they squirm when I say revolution. And I'm like, if you're black, <laughs> you may not want to think about yourselves as being at war. I get it; it's not fair. But the race war started in like the 1400s, sometime when when white people when when Europeans started calling themselves white people or started thinking of themselves, positioning themselves as white people, the race war already begun. So you may not want to think about yourself as being involved in a war, but the white world is at war with you. And they are organized about their violence. And so the only way that you're going to be free is if you are organized about your freedom, right? So I, I'm talking about meeting the organized violence of the white world with an organized nonviolent struggle that has been that people of color have innovated for you know generations now. So anyway, I know that I'm getting like kind of philosophical about this, but the strategy piece is really, uh, you know, the the simplest conception. Gosh, I I can't remember his name. There's a book I read about grand strategy a couple years ago. It's called On Grand Strategy, and I such a good book. Um, but he basically said like. Strategy is basically answering the question of how you will use what you have to get what you want, right? Mm -hmm. John Lewis Gaddis. There it is, yes, John Lewis Gaddis. How you will use what you have to get what you want while accounting for the challenges you'll face along the way, right? And there's some prerequisites to be able to do that. To, to use what you have, you got to know what you have. To get what you want, you got to know what you want. <laughs> Considering the challenges that'll, that you'll face along the way, you got to have some idea of the challenges that you'll face along the way. Um, and you and I were in a Harvard course where like, we, we learned from you know, people who have toppled dictators in other countries and they gave us resources from their colleagues who have also toppled dictators in other countries and things like that. And one of the resources that I found so helpful was Robert Helvey's work um, because Helvey used to be a military guy and was convinced by Gene Sharp about the power of nonviolence, and then he goes and helps non he go he went and helped, you know, nonviolent movements in the Philippines and in Serbia and all this kind of stuff. And he basically appropriated like the same a similar process to how conventional armies gather information, analyze it, and produce courses of action to achieve their objectives. Uh, that they call appreciation of the situation in, in conventional warfare, but he appropriated that into what we call a strategic estimate for nonviolent struggle. Now, for those who are listening, I would not recommend like you go and try to produce a strategic estimate because it's like super detailed and you need a lot of resources. And it also makes certain assumptions about the way that nonviolent struggle can be conducted that I don't think are actually accurate anymore. But... <laughs> At the same time, the simple fact that that this strategic estimate will ask you to think through, like, what's the geography of this place that you're going to be planning campaigns in, right? Like, where where are how many districts are in your city? Basically, that's the question, right? That's a ge that's a ge geographical question. How many districts are in your city, and uh, how are they run? How many city council members do you have on on city council? And what's the what's the political attitudes of people in those different districts? Are they more conservative? Are they more liberal? Are they, you know, is it is it black and brown? Is it mostly white? Is it, you know, are they affluent? Are they, you know, all these things factor in to the way that you're going to go about your campaign. So very simple. I know I've been, I can talk about this all day. So I'm going to stop after this example. The this strategic question. 
a strategic question that was not asked. And I tell this story a lot, but I just think it captures it so well. I was in LA, the LA area, with this group of activists. And we had spent all night out the night before. We tried to occupy a city hall in a small town outside of LA and got chased off the premises by the police. And the next morning, you know, uh, people are talking about going to march down to the mayor's house and tell them to fire the police chief. And <clears throat> and I talked to, you know, I talked to the one of the lead activists there and I was like, well, the mayor of the city actually doesn't hire and fire the police chief. That's the city manager's job, right? So we should be marching to the city manager wherever he is. He's not at home, so we can't, we should march to the city manager's house right now. We should, he's right across the street at city hall. So we should march over city hall if we want, you know, to go confront him. That's a strategic question. Like that, that has to do with, did you sit down to do the work of knowing how this system works, what you want, who can give it to you and how you can wield power over them. And what I see a lot happening right now is people being very impassioned and very sincere about their their actions but they're just kind of going out and just like throwing spaghetti at the wall like just see what see what sticks and there's a time when that's all you can do right like if you're an oppressed if you're a part of an oppressed group and you're really being you know if you're really under attack it's hard to find the space to do that kind of strategic work you know and that needs to be said um but most americans (laughs) i think are not that pressed against the wall to where they can't, you know, make some time to do that or make sure that they're working with people who are taking the time and the space to do that kind of work. Yeah. So you're in the throes of writing a book. Yes. Draft one, draft two, draft three. Um, can you give us a synopsis or an overview? I know it's not done, but can you give us like a... Like, yeah. It's not done, but at this point, it's not going to change very much. So, you know, at this point, now the things that are changing are like this word, that comma, that kind of thing. And basically, the book is kind of a memoir and manifesto at the same time. So it's very much it very much covers the past six years because 2016 is when I say I really like drew a line in the sand. But there were stirrings right like before then. So it starts in around 2015 up to 2020, right? And covers those years in a memoirish kind of style and talks about that political awakening for me. And along the way, I'm giving the kind of stuff that we've talked about, I'm giving the lessons like about like what I learned, right? And how I learned these things, you know? And a huge part of that journey is having to let go of a lot of the white friends that I had before that awakening really took off. White ethnically, white ontologically. (laughs) Right, now that we've opened that can of worms. Yeah, like not just because they have like, you know, not because they appear to be white, but because of whiteness, right? The whiteness, the anti-black common sense, you know, that they are are victims to. I'll say they're victims of, right? Um, but even though they're victims of it, they don't, they, they couldn't let it go. Right. So I talk about it as like, a. I use the rapture as an analogy for this in the book. 
because I was very afraid of the rapture growing up. And um, now? No, I don't believe in the rapture anymore. But <laughs> but <laughs> but I but I but the thing that I was afraid of was that my loved ones were going to be taken. They were going to disappear one day, and I was going to be left behind. <clears throat> and in a sense, through the apocalypse of the Black Lives Matter movement. I was taken and they were left. <laughs> right. So. Um, so maybe that's a good point to kind of pivot and kind of explore, you know, how is your faith or your shifting faith shape your practice? In what ways have you found your faith change? I guess. Oh, yeah. Over, the last, over those last five, six yeah seven years because i recall a moment you and i were at seminary and um i think i was walking to class you were walking away from class you had your black broad brim hat on you were in the throes of like this is andre the musician yeah Uh, and i just returned from ferguson oh yeah i do remember that and and uh, you, in your very kind of mellow way, you just go, "Hey, man, I heard you're in Ferguson last week." <laughs> and I go, uh, "Yeah, yeah, man." And he goes, "Oh," and you go, "Wow, we need to get coffee about this because I didn't expect you to go to Ferguson." <laughs> <laughs> so, how has how has that Andre changed to this Andre? And in the in the space, like in the locus and the focus of your faith. Yeah. What, um give us like a taste of like yeah. what's changed. Well, music is still very important to me. So yeah. that's that's one thing. That hasn't really changed, but it is yeah, it's. I think it, it. It's playing a even bigger role in my life now than it was then. I'd say that, you know, I um, Bob Marley has always been one of my like heroes, and when I was young, I used to listen to like Bob Marley all the time. And I think what I loved about him was partly, you know, he sang about freedom. He sang about confronting oppression. He sang about standing up to bullies and stuff like that. Now that I'm older, I understand that he was singing about Black liberation, right? And so I've I've actually gone deeper into his work than ever in the past, you know, couple months now, especially just listening to Bob Marley every day. Like in the morning, I wake up and I listen to Chant Down Babylon and I (laughs) feel (laughs) like, first off, just really jealous that he made this very happy song that literally says, come, let's go burn down Babylon one more time. <laughs> you know? um, so anyway, the the reggae music is much more important to me. You know, my dad's a reggae musician, you know, traveled, traveled the world playing reggae music. And um, there's, there's a, there's a spiritual connection and a, and a black liberation connection in that music. Right. And I think that's also why it's become such a home for me right now, because 
my dad always wanted me to follow in his footsteps and make reggae music. And I was like writing all these R&B love songs and worship songs when I was more involved in church and stuff and just didn't feel like reggae music was, that it was mine to participate in. Yeah. And now I'm really being challenged in that way. My faith has changed because I'm living in this like, I'm trying to, I think trying is even a really strong word. I've been, I was very close to Christian faith in 2016 yeah. when, you know, that moment where I was like, maybe God is just a white supremacist supervillain and was invented by white people. Maybe God's not real, but it's just like this, you know, projection of white people of themselves into the cosmos, right? And um, I've been on a journey to at least just be open to God and to accept like that Jesus is important to me, right? Um, but to differentiate somehow between the only version of Christianity that most of us know, which is the one introduced to us by the colonizers and to like the bigness of spirituality so like I can share like a lesson that I had the other day. And it's hard for me to talk about this stuff because I still have the feeling that like, you know, Christians are always like watching to see like, are you gonna say the right thing, right? Like and da 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 blah blah blah. So I know that doesn't matter, but I just wanna name that, right? Like well, yeah, and and it doesn't matter because I think what and I don't know the lesson or the story that you're about to tell. Mm-hmm. But I think what it may do is it may give people permission right. to uh, lean into the uncertainty that they have a hunch on yeah, and then actually find more truth in leaning into it. Yeah. Because, because there's an importance here of differentiating God and Jesus. Yeah. And differentiating Jesus and the church. Yeah. And, um, you know, people who are probably more orthodox uh church lovers who kind of have it wrapped up in a in a double helix right uh this is a space that they we could say fear to tread right so i'll say this i gave up on spirituality altogether in 2016. i was like even even the spiritual non-religious people i was like y'all are trash too because you know there were just all there was just all the spiritual bypassing that was going on, right? Like evangelicals like to spiritual bypass by using the Bible and using Jesus' name, and spiritual non-religious people like to spiritually bypass by talking about love and all the other kind of stuff, right? So I was like, yeah, forget all that. All I care about is how do we save Black lives and how do we do it practically, right? Um, but as I started studying nonviolent struggle. And I was kind of working through this kind of genealogy of philosophical thought around nonviolent struggle and the praxis of nonviolent struggle. I kept running into religious people, you know, and not just Christians, you know, Sikh and Buddhist and Jain and, you know, Muslim and all kinds of things. But there were always, in, in most cases, there were religious people um, in the vanguard of many of these liberation movements. And so that at least made me say, well, I don't have to throw the whole thing away. Um, I don't have to throw the idea of the divine away. I don't have to throw spirituality away. And um, 
so that's one thing. The other thing that I wanted to share about this was the other day I was just thinking about this. Um, sorry, before I do that, I just kind of went on kind of like a reconstructive journey through that in the nonviolent struggle thing, you know, where I'm not going to like, you know, we don't have time for me to like go through a systematic theology of what Andre believes. And I don't think it would be that interesting anyway, but you know, there was like a reconstructive journey in there somewhere. But I think what you do point out is that it, it, it is imperative to have your own systematic theology to, to kind of deconstruct and reconstruct at the same time. That's important for like just to know someone's own boundaries, who they are and where they're going. Yeah. You know, like I just got to the point in, in faith where it was just like not important for me to have answers anymore. It just wasn't important for me to have answers anymore. And this is, and this goes with the story I was going to tell is that I just thought about this the other day because the biggest questions, even though white supremacy really blew me out of the church, there were a whole bunch of other questions about justice. I think these are still justice issues, even though they feel personal that were really involved, that were really bothering me. So I wrote a whole song in 2015 called the endless violence, right? It's one of my least popular songs. Most people don't know about this song, but it's on Spotify and all that kind of stuff. Um, and when people hear it, they assume that it's about police brutality because, hey, Andre is a racial justice. So the endless violence must be police violence. But I wrote the endless violence because at the time, Rob Bell was in the news because he was adamantly saying he didn't believe that homosexuality was a sin. And I wrote the endless violence about existential dread <clears throat> because inside at the time I felt like I haven't studied this subject enough to tell you that like, I know all the Greek words in the Bible and all the Hebrew words in the Bible that refer to this thing. And, and it couldn't mean that. And I just, it just, I just got to the point at that time in my life where I just felt like, there is only so much that I can actually know, right? Because I could tell you that I know all the Greek words and I know how they were translated and all that kind of stuff, and I could still be wrong, right? And so I was faced with the with the reality that I just had to make a decision and that I had the freedom to make the make a decision about what I believe about this because I could be wrong. No matter what conclusion I come to, I could be wrong. And Kierkegaard writes about this, I think, where like the freedom that we have to make decisions and to make meaning can be a source of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, on top of that, you know, I was, you know, on top of that, you know, I also was just asking personal questions around this issue. Right. So I wrote the endless violence to talk about this. All right. So let's fast forward all the way to now. <laughs> just the other day, just just the other day. Uh, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. The reason I was telling, talking about that is because the other social justice issues. That I, so I was really questioning, like, God, like, I want to be a Christian, but do I have to be mean to gay people? Yeah. Because I don't have any interest in being mean to gay people. And it was around that time when I wrote The Endless Violence when I just decided, like, I cannot be a part of anyone's oppression. Not knowingly, not willingly. So, like, you know, if God... And I thought about like these scriptures, right? Like God telling Joshua to go and kill all the people in Canaan and stuff like that. And I really thought about this and I said, if God had appeared to me in like 
unexplicably, like all the blinding lights and angels and all that other kind of stuff you read about in the Bible. And God was like, listen, Andre, I need you to go kill these people over there because they're evil or they did this or they did that or they worship other gods or they they hurt your ancestors or whatever. I don't know. Whatever it was, you know, I would say no. I, I would hope that that's not something that God would want. But if that is something that God would want and God would come to me, I would have to say no, because I can't do that. You know, I thought about that passage in Leviticus where it's like you're going to stone stone two men that lie together to death, which I don't think is the same thing as, you know, men now that want to get married. But at the time, I was just like, if God, if I was living at that time and the law was stone these people to death, <laughs> I wouldn't be, st- I, I couldn't do it. You know, so um, that was one thing being mean to gay people. The other thing that was really hard for me was the idea of Christian exclusivity or supremacy. It was like if you're Buddhist or Muslim or or Sikh or whatever, that you're going to hell. Right. And so those were two major things for me. Um, So anyway, the other day. This story from Exodus comes back to mind. Exodus is such a good book. Like, by the way, like, a lot of times when I'm like, oh, like, I got, I straightened that out. It's because I, it's because of something that from Exodus came back to my mind. So anyway, it, I've talked about this before, but it was the moment where God introduces God's self to Moses and says, my name is Yahweh, but your ancestors called me El Shaddai, right? <clears throat> and I've talked about this before where I was like, wait a minute, you got a whole book, Genesis, where everyone's calling God El something <laughs> because El is the name of the high god of canaan and that means that all these people thought of god as the high god of canaan and god is saying i'm not really l anything you know but i let your ancestors understand me as l something and call me l something and i responded to them as l something because that's how they understood me remember the first time i thought about that i was at fuller and i was at christian assembly in eagle rock and they're all, everyone's singing around me and lifting their hands in the air. And I'm just sitting sitting there going, who are we talking to right now? <laughs> I, was so, I, was so just, I was just like, so like, like in this epistemo, epistemological, like, you know, angst. <laughs> who are we even talking to? I laugh. I laugh because I've been there. I've sat in the seat. And everyone around me is doing exactly the same thing. And I've asked the same question. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on here? Like, I don't understand. Who but, are we talking to? <laughs> but, but everyone, I guess, is assuming they're t- talking to the same person. Right. And, and there's so much you could get into there because late, cause that was also the question I had to revisit in 2016 when I'm like, is God a white supremacist supervillain, right? It's the same thing. So anyway, just the other day, I at least felt like the the question of exclusivity came back to me because the, the thing about like the anti-gay Christian thing, I felt like that was already settled. It was just like, I can't be a part of anyone's oppression and I don't believe that God is asking me to. But the exclusivity thing came back to me and that that same story came back to me and that same point came back to me, but it just really felt like, wait a minute, like God does not care what you call God. If I'm taking that story seriously, right? God does not care because like God is not sitting here like, well, 
do you know my name? You know, like it's not Rumpelstiltskin. You know what I mean? Like it's not that kind of kind of deal. Um, and so I'm kind of at that place where like my faith is uh, way more open to mystery. Yep. It's way bigger than certainty and having answers and understanding everything and all that kind of stuff. And I really am thinking a lot more about like the only Christianity that many of us know is the one that Christopher Columbus and all these others, you know, came to these indigenous lands with and murdered people in the name of, right? But we don't really know, we don't know how our indigenous ancestors thought about God and communed with God and talked to God and all that kind of stuff. And whether or not they used all of the language that really devout Christians today believe is right or correct, there is a story in the Bible that tells me that God responds to what you call God, (laughs) you know, um, at least some of the time, right? It's just very messy there in scripture. And so that my, my, you know, what I believe is messy too. Um, and the, uh, sorry, I know I, I can go way, 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 way deep into things, but um, That's the, thing, the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, lately too, is really about Bob Marley's faith, you know? Um, there's some Rastafari, there's some Rastafarians that really believe that Heli Selassie is God, like is Jesus Christ returned to earth, right? And I think that Bob Marley believed that. But the thing that I had to wrestle with just today was the issue of divine intervention again, because that was something that I just took off the table altogether. And Bob Marley challenged me because I really have been listening to him. And I really understand that even the reason why Bob Marley says certain things like in Redemption Song, he says, and don't fear atomic energy because none of them can stop the time. And I'm like, do you understand how atomic energy works? (laughs) You know, but he says things like that because he believes that there's going to be divine intervention. I I didn't put that back on the table just because Bob Marley believes it, but that's how it started loosening up some of my rigid, like, you know, you know, closed, my, how closed I've been to some of this stuff. Yeah. But I thought about that moment where I was struck by this idea. I mean, it really was a vision. I just don't like calling it a vision, but it, it wasn't, a, yeah. When I started lugging this boulder around Los Angeles for a few months in 2016, and the way that I, the way that that happened, you know, it just came about in like this really spontaneous kind of, you know, mystical experience that I had that I wasn't seeking, that I wasn't trying to produce. I wasn't praying or meditating. I was eating leftovers. And next thing you know, I'm kind of transported, you know, into downtown Pasadena and watching myself standing and seeing myself standing in front of me, you know, next to this big white boulder and, you know, talking about racial justice. I think that that, I think in a way that is divine intervention. So I'm just kind of like here tethered to Jesus without many answers, trying to love my neighbor like I love my, you know, 
Trying to live my neighbor as myself. Which is actually quite a fleeing place to be, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm going to preface this last question uh, to invite you back sometime soon. Uh, yeah. Post book, A, to kind of push the book out, but also B, because um, I think, uh, as always, whenever you and I dive into things, uh, we always tend to go deeper than we, than we I guess, realise. <laughs> um, but it is the usual final question of this podcast, which is, uh, for you, Andre, how is one's imagination, social and spiritual, shaped by your approach to leading and shaping those around you? In how is your it shaped by? Yeah, so how is it shaped by the way you lead yourself and the way you lead others? In your in your understanding of who Jesus is, and how does this contribute to like a reimagination of ourselves, uh, the space that you're in, and ultimately uh, the world? All right, I'm going to try to answer this. I don't know if I can. Um, Take your time as well, mate. Yeah, you know. So. I'm still kind of in that place where I'm trying to under like I'm still trying to make sense of kind of the traumatic experience of learning that you know I was pretty much a part of a white supremacist death cult that we call evangelicalism right so I'm still processing that and depending on the day <laughs> I might be anywhere, you know what I mean? Like when you, when you talk about like kind of how things are related to Jesus, I will say, and this is partly why I brought up Bob Marley and Rastafarianism that, oh, okay. So this is a part that was left out out of the last one, but it's still connected, right? Yeah. When I talked about like how God, God is not pressed about what name you call God the expression that like the most high that my father uses that many black people that i know use that rastafarians use and stuff like that when they talk about the most high it just made sense to me after a while because i used to like i used to like roll my eyes at people who talk like that like, what are you talking about you know but to really understand that the 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 tremendous mystery that is god is truly beyond our naming, right? And even Christians who want to get really hyped up, because a lot of times, you know, Christians get really nervous about that kind of stuff. But like, you have to also understand, like, even in the original text of the Bible, like, the name of God is literally made unpronounceable so that you will not, you won't say God's name, right? Yeah. Is why Isaiah says the name of the Lord is, is, is incomprehensible, right? And why many Jewish people just refer to God as Hashem, the name, right? So anyway, that 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 was what that was my uh, epiphany the other day. I was like, oh, like so it makes sense to refer to like God as the Most High in this way. So I would say that the thing that you know from my Christian faith that has really shaped the way that I show up in the world and my leadership and stuff like that was like 
around that time in 2016 when I was reading Revelation and really reading Revelation as, you know, this this vision that John has because the empire killed his friend Antipas. We talk a lot about like Christians being persecuted in the first century. Only one person is named in the book of Revelation, Antipas, right? And I've thought, you know, is it possible that John has this sweeping vision of how the entire Roman Empire has to be abolished because of the state because of state violence against one of his friends, right? Like hashtag Antipas, right? Um, and for the first time, these this language from Rastafarianism of speaking of these systems as Babylon, understanding how Rome participates in a similar type of imperial violence as Babylon did, and how America participates in a similar type of imperial violence as these ancient empires, right? And, like we don't even we don't even connect often. I feel like I feel like people who are closer to the academy do, but I feel like most people do not connect the dots between when we're talking about racism, we are talking about the logics of empire continuing in the present, right? America is a child of the British Empire and <laughs> wasn't trying to break with all of those traditions. It was just trying to rebrand itself, right? Um, and so when we do that, then we can also see how racist, colonial, fascist violence, you know, is connected across the globe, right? So that's how that kind of like, that's that one, that's one connection there, like from, you know, faith. And I hasten to say that like, even though like I came at that from, you know, while I was at Sem Fuller Seminary, that honestly, it's specifically the way that Rastafarian people look at that or use that kind of language and highlight that kind of thing that really com really is compelling to me. I'm not Rastafarian, but I appreciate the way that they approach that stuff because Rastafarian Rastafari is a black liberation movement, you know, um, that Muta Baruka, a Rastafari poet, he says, you know, Rastafari is a black liberation movement with a spiritual awakening at its center as its nucleus, right? And it really is a response to colonialism, <laughs> you know? Um, people don't realize Jamaica, Jamaica was a colony of Britain until 1962, you know? Like, my mom, my mom lived under a colonial, <laughs> a colonial regime, you know? And even now, Britain still owns Jamaica. It's just like in name that it's, you know, we, we talk about something else. So anyway, it, this is, so that kind of faith or that kind of, what do we, maybe a hermeneutic, you want to call it? Like maybe that kind of hermeneutic really appeals to me as someone who has grown up under a, a colonial regime, right? Uh, the colonial regime of America is the this is the son of people who lived under the colonial regime of britain and jamaica um but these people are using imagery and language that i'm very familiar with from growing up in christianity <clears throat> to approach that um and how that how it shakes my imagination is that i really have been you know you know i've, I've sang i have a song called super dread where i sing a, i actually wrote it about donald trump you know um and the bridge, you know, 
pulls from, you know, Daniel and pulls from Revelation and that scene where Nebuchadnezzar goes mad and he's eating grass for seven years, I think, which I think is really just those books that are written about the the time that they're in Babylon, like Nehemiah and Daniel and Esther, you know, like those just those are those are places in the Bible that I can go to. Like the Bible is kind of traumatic in general, you know, or it, there's there's trauma surrounding the Bible for me. But those are places in the Bible that to this day I can go to and feel like I relate to these people, you know, and the Psalms that were written, you know, about these kinds of times, too. So anyway, uh, the, the the path I was on was talking about like how that shapes my social imagination. And that really is a social imagination that I'm bringing when you see me preaching at All Saints Church in Pasadena or on the street in, with Black Lives Matter Pasadena when I worked with Black, Black Lives Matter Pasadena is, you know, imagining like when these oppressed people imagine the emperor eating grass like a cow or they imagine, you know, um, these angels singing hallelujah as Babylon falls in Revelation 18. And for them, like, <clears throat> this is an earthy vision, right? Like that John is talking about. He's not talking about some tower in the sky, you know, some or whatever. He He's talking about merchants wailing over Babylon falling because they're losing their business and things like that, right? There's an abolitionist or, or even Exodus 2, I wrote a whole series about this, you know, years ago, um, the God of the ghetto, you know, that God takes this abolitionist stance against the Egypt of that story, right? And takes a very radical approach to that abolitionist stance, one that I wouldn't even, you know, that I wouldn't even do, you know, like, but God is like destroying crops and <clears throat> destroying property and, you know, basically says this this system cannot be reformed. It cannot be redeemed. It has to be abolished, right? These things influence my social imagination. It's the thing that I invite people into, you know, when I'm, you know, the way that I'm writing this book, <laughs> you know, this is not about sitting down and having coffee with people who have bad ideas about race. Like this, this is about how do we build a movement that, take seriously the fact that the realities that we are protesting are descended from colonialism right they are and they are descended from imperialism right and that's a huge part of the problem a huge part of this problem is that germ even german fascists in the 1930s and we understand that what germany was doing was basically trying to colonize other european countries nearby right um, they were looking at America and they literally wrote in one of their <clears throat> one of their Nazi uh, Nazi magazines, you know, that um, that the most important event in the Aryan races quest for world domination was the creation of the United States of America. Yeah, that's that's almost an exact quote. The only reason it's not an exact quote is because I didn't read it firsthand but I can send it to you, you know, they they wrote that. So when I'm, so when I'm approaching, you know, racism and the way that I'm trying to encourage others to see and confront racism is not as this, you know, deeply personal individual, you know, miss and 
emotional problem, right? This is about imagining a completely different world where these systems that we are talking about don't exist. We have to be able to imagine that world. And when we say that we can't, we're echoing the very words that slaveholders use to justify the global slave trade. <clears throat> they lit like if you read uh, Slavery and Capitalism by Eric Williams, like they have literal quotes from these colonizers and slaveholders saying we can't abolish slavery because our world depends on it. The world that we're building depends on this economic engine. Right. And that's the same thing that people are saying about prisons and police brutality that descend from slavery, you know, like. So that's one that's about that social imagination and about really confronting that, right? Like not thinking that we're going to sit down and have coffee conversations and panel discussions on race and diversity hires and all this stuff. And that's going to make it better. No, we have to have a direct confrontation, a direct confrontation with these systems where we say, look, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do what Simon says anymore. We're not going to participate in that. Um, yeah. so I feel like that's a really unorganized way to answer that question. And the irony of that last comment is that I was going to say, and so organize, organize, organize. <laughs> and do so strategically. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, Andre, I've really appreciated uh, this uh, time that you've given us, which I'm going to say is going to be part one of further conversations. Um, yeah, I'm so sorry. I talk so much. <laughs> do not apologize. Um, I'm looking forward to your book coming out uh, in the next couple of months. And, um, Thanks. Um, it comes out next March. Next March. Okay. Well, next year. And um, no doubt we'll have you back on the podcast before then. All right. I look forward to it. Thanks, brother.